Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 38 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today I'm joined by Kirsten Baus, who is a psychologist. She's a clinical and forensic psychologist with over 20 years experience across clinical, forensic and corporate psychology. She owns the Life Resolutions Clinic in Morley and Wembley in Western Australia and has a team of eight psychologists and provides internships for masters and doctoral students. She also combines her experiences as an ambitious mother, as she says, and psychologist, and she works with women through the transition to motherhood. Her clients range from women experiencing perinatal anxiety or depression to sweet C executives finding it difficult to blend their professional and mothering worlds successfully. And in 2016, Kirsten authored her book and founded her business, The Conscious Mother. On today's show, Kirsten and I talk about mindset. For me, this was a really important piece to my recovery from SIBO. We talk about why mindset is such a valuable tool and aspect to recovering from chronic illness. And we discuss how you can start to address your mindset and what you can do to start making changes so that you can think your way to health and wellness. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Kirsten Baus. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Kirsten Baus. It's lovely to have you here. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. And we're talking all about mindset today. And I'd love for you to start off by um, telling my listeners a little bit about yourself and your own personal journey with SIBO. Sure thing. I'll try not to um, talk for too long about it. It feels like it's been a long story. Um, I'll get to the SIBO bit in a minute, though. So I'm a mum of four. I have uh, my kids are between nine and nearly 17 years of age, which freaks me out a bit that I could possibly have a child <laughs> who's learning to drive. Um, and I'm also a clinical and forensic psychologist, and I've been in my profession for over 20 years now, and it's been a very varied profession. I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunities I've had. Um, I run my own businesses. I have two businesses, Life Resolutions, and that's in Morley and Wembley in Perth. And I also have my other business, The Conscious Mother, because one of the things I really do love doing is working with other mums, particularly, you know, I find sweet food uh, very 
disgusting. But in terms of my SIBO journey, as you would know, it's really a quite recent diagnosis and treatment uh, experience, but it really does span many, many years. I guess I would uh, say that I never had the best digestive system from the get-go, it seems. I've had weird intolerances right from infancy. So, um, you know, I find sweet food uh, very disgusting. <laughs> it doesn't taste nice. It makes me feel sick. And it always has. So when my mum put me onto the pureed apple and mashed banana and all the rest, when you put your babies onto solids, I would consistently be sick. But, that you know, we managed that, but it still didn't create for a great digestive system and, and lots of um, problems, I guess, going to the toilet and sore tummy and all that jazz. But what I, it really culminated when I went to Nepal and trekked through the Himalayas for four weeks and I was 24 years of age and I got Guardia while I was there and it was really common to get. So we all went armed with the, the medication that you take for it. I, I just was so, so chronically sick. I've really not got a recollection of the first day I was unwell. I just, I don't know how I put one foot in front of the other, but I did. And you know, that really marks a time when everything went even more downhill for me and eating became something, I mean, I love food, I really do love food, uh, but it was always that sense of, you know, what can I safely have without actually getting sick. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I had another couple of bouts of Guardia, which when I spoke with the doctors about, I really was quite dumbfounded because on the one hand, they were saying to me the medication would completely solve the problem. And yet I had two more occasions of really serious guardia and it's a very distinct illness. I didn't even need to go to the doctor to know I'd had another bout of it because it has a distinct smell when you burp. <laughs> and this medication is supposed to solve the problem and I hadn't travelled overseas and Perth hadn't had any of outbreaks of Guardia in our water. It's like how how on earth could I have caught Guardia again? And it really set the scene for some really chronic, chronic episodes of what I actually was then also told, because I went down the path of gastroenterologists and all that jazz, of what I what I referred to as my IBS. So I'd talk about how my IBS was really playing up and you know, for me, the pain was absolutely excruciating and I would find it really, really difficult. So, you know, it would just day after day after day after day. And then I did get medication. It was antispasmodic medication prescribed. And I would find that if I was really religious with that, it would kind of settle those symptoms down and I could go months and months without any other problem. And then bam, I'd be hit again and I'd go through another couple of months of, of real difficult living <laughs> because of this. And it was just really, I guess, fortunate and serendipitous that you and I were connected through a mutual colleague and got talking about this SIBO thing. And, um, you know, when you mentioned that so many people diagnosed with IBS actually have SIBO, I was, I was, I mean, I think I went home and within a week I'd ordered the test. And, yeah, it was very clear my results were high for both hydrogen and methane, really, really high. 
And, you know, it was absolutely apparent. And I am the kind of person, you know, speaking about mindset, I guess, I am the kind of person who, when I make my mind up to do something, I do it and construct my life around, you know, doing whatever it is I've decided to do. And so for me, when I got the results, I booked into the naturopath, you know, I I just got on and, and did it and I finished that. So I started that in January this year, which means I would have finished around March and April. And yeah, it's just been fabulous. I feel a million bucks. I think I'm a lot clearer about what I can and can't eat. And I'd always had those hunches before. Uh, and, you know, I guess generally tried to steer away from certain foods. Uh, but it's a lot clearer for me now. And I just know the price that I pay if I go down that path. So, yeah, I mean, the the other perk, which I hate saying it because I don't like to be weight focused, but I did lose seven kilos as well, which was really great because not that I was, you know, overweight by any means, but I was certainly at the upper range of what I felt comfortable with. And, you know, losing that weight and just having my whole gut feel a heap better. I'm sleeping better. I feel in a much better frame of mind. I certainly have, you know, really stressful days still at times, but um, I don't know. I don't have a lethargy about me or a fog. I used to really need afternoon sleeps on the weekend, which often didn't happen though because I've got four kids, but I'd really feel that so, so tired. And even though I'm kind of as busy as I've ever been, uh, I just don't feel that need And I can only attribute it to having gone through the protocol and really, you know, obviously healed my gut and healed off uh, the bad stuff and (laughs) sorted all of that out. And also continuing to eat, you know, according to what works for my body. It's so interesting you talk about Giardia and uh, I myself have had that delightful parasite a few <laughs> times as well. So I know I know the pain that goes along with it and I picked, um, I picked my first bout of that up from ice at Dubai Airport on a trip oh, home from the UK one goodness. year and um, I, it took sort of 10 days to incubate and on New Year's Day in the mid-2000s I was struck down and spent weeks to and from hospitals with doctors having absolutely no idea what was wrong with me and uh, having lost a significant you know, quite a significant amount of weight and being, you know, in excruciating agony Mm. and finally um, a doctor um, after many doctors, a doctor saying, I think I know what you've got, you've you've picked up a parasite. And within a few days of taking the antibiotic treatment, I was much better. But I picked it up again when I was travelling around through South America uh, a couple of years ago. And I'm definitely quite a lot more susceptible to picking up parasites and, and bugs than, mm. than I think the average person. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you talk about also clarity around food. Um, can you sort of talk a little bit more around you know, what that evolution has been like for you? Because I know when we met each other some months ago now, mm. you were talking to me about, oh, I've just, I've got, I know I've got intolerances to certain foods. And so how has that evolved from, from saying, okay, I know I'm not great with certain foods to where you are today? 
Yeah, well, I think um, I definitely can't tolerate grains. I've worked that out for sure. And to be honest, the obvious things like bread and pasta, I hadn't been having, I haven't had for years and years because I would, I would notice that I felt bloated after having that. So that was something that I largely cut, I mean, cut out of my diet, oh, you know, 20 years ago or something, I guess. Uh, I might indulge every now and again and it never, you know, brought me to my knees. I would certainly feel a bit sore the next day and bloated, but as long as it was just kind of once every six or 12 months or something, I could manage that. But, yeah, definitely grains. And the big difference with that on a kind of day-to-day basis is I'm a bit of a creature of habit. If I like a food, I'm happy to eat it all the time. And I love porridge. And so that would be my breakfast every single morning for I don't know how many years. And so, you know, that was that was a big change for me when I went on the SIBO protocol was to stop eating that. Um, I love eggs. So it wasn't, um, and that's what I now have every morning, it wasn't an issue to have those by any means. But, you know, porridge is a breakfast food and, <laughs> and that's what I would have. And so I'm very, very clear for me that grains are just a, a no-go zone. And since I've finished the 12-week protocol, you know, I have tested that a few times and it's just blatantly obvious because I get such a sore stomach and, you know, I look I look pregnant. And when I don't eat that stuff, I don't look pregnant and I'm not pregnant. Um so that's really clear. To be honest, dairy is something that I've always wondered whether I can manage. And I actually think I can. I a few times. I certainly don't have that reaction to dairy like I do with grains and particularly gluten. But I am an absolute cheese fiend. I have no willpower. <laughs> Um, around it whatsoever. So even though I know I can tolerate it, and again, I have tested this since I've come off the protocol to see, I've made the decision that I'm just not going to bring it back into my life because, you know, too much of any food really is not good for you. And that would be something that was so easy for me to snack snack on and have heaps over the course of a day without even really noticing and you know yogurt as well uh, because I don't like anything sweet and it makes me feel sick it was still always natural and it was good quality but I, I really think the combination of those two things in the volumes that I was having them just again wasn't good for me and while I, I don't think I'm intolerant to it um, or probably not intolerant to it if I ate it at a normal level <laughs> rather than the quantities I tend to. Yeah, I've just made the decision not to have that in my diet. But before SIBO, you know, the other thing that I really, uh, I, I do like um, red meat and I would find that I could probably only tolerate it maybe once a week. It, it, it felt to me like I couldn't break it down quickly enough. So if I had you know, three or four meals with red meat over the course of a week. It just, one was fine, two not so bad. But once I really hit that third and fourth in the week, it's kind of, it just felt as though it was building up in my body. And again, then, you know, I wouldn't be going to the toilet and, you know, would just have a really sore stomach and bloated stomach. 
Now, I know that they kind of suggest at best to have red meat, what, I think, no more than three times a week, and I'm I'm pretty, pretty, you know, compliant with that recommendation naturally anyway, even though I live in a house of carnivores. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just don't have that problem anymore, you know. I, I It doesn't seem to accumulate in the same way it used to. So while I'm still choosing not to have a lot for other reasons because it's just good for your health not to have too much, you know, I, I know that if I am to have a week where it just somehow has occurred that I've had more red, red meat than that, it's not building up in my system. So that's really what I've worked out for me. I'm still testing um, things like fermented foods. So I really love sauerkraut. And I have a bit of a disappointing feeling that that may not go down well. And the reason is the last time I had it, I did feel quite sore in my tummy and bloated afterwards. But not that I can remember now because it was it was about a month ago that I did it. But I, I remember at that time thinking, oh, it could have been this, it could have been that, or it could have been the sauerkraut. So I do need to test that again and make sure that everything else that I eat around that period of time is really clean and and Kirsten friendly so I can see the effects of that. So there's a, as I said, there's a few random bits and pieces I'm still kind of testing and, you know, working out what works for me, but some I'm very clear about. And uh, fermented foods can often be one that takes some time for people to bring back into their diet. I know that I started okay. really small. I was literally doing a teaspoon at a time mm. every few mm. days just to mm. um, retest and, and rebuild um, back into my system. Uh, and yep. I would alternate between, say, a uh, um, a lovely sauerkraut and a homemade coconut yogurt that had been fermented for 24 hours and just doing it really, really small um, so that it slow and steady uh, so that my system could, okay. could tolerate it. Um, yeah, yeah. I know that my listeners, we will get into mindset, but I know my listeners will be wanting to know um, what treatment uh, protocol you followed. And given that you saw a naturopath here in Australia, I am assuming you did a herbal route rather than an antibiotic route. Am I correct in that assumption? Yeah, definitely. And I, I've been to a naturopath on many occasions. So the crazy concoctions <laughs> that taste um, pretty awful. Um, I'm really familiar with and yeah so that was always going to be my pathway. I certainly do not have an aversion to traditional medicine at all you know so I, I am someone who would go off to a doctor if I felt that that was the best way to go but for this I really felt I mean I again I remember you and I talking and, and you it can be a bit of a slower process but it tends to have a lot more uh, restorative benefits and long-term benefits and so I I wasn't in a rush to get through this and uh, a few people in my life have kind of said oh so will you be you know kind of getting back to normal with your eating and things and for me it's like well this this is my new normal and I mean I, I have to admit I'll be be honest in the sense that because of my sweet food thing which I've had since I was born uh, some of those early times of the SIBO eating protocol where you really cut out fruit. You know, I, I don't eat fruit anyway. It's always made me feel sick. So in that sense, I didn't have that added difficulty that most people would have. But nonetheless, 
you know, as I said, this is my this is my new normal, and um, I really feel as though the you know protocol that I underwent and and all that early stage healing stuff that went on, yeah, and then and then obviously the treatment, the direct treatment itself, it just really worked well. I mean, I had my little chart in the kitchen where I kept all my. Uh, but then again once I knew what week I was on it was like okay I know what I need to do I know what I need to take I didn't find that particularly cumbersome at all because it's not like it's changing from day to day to day to day Uh, so yeah that that was definitely my preference and you know I'm I you know there's I don't regret going down that path in fact I'm really really pleased and I I guess it was also underpinned by this concept of this medication will get rid of Guardia and my skepticism whether it actually really did Um, (laughs) so yeah it's interesting you talk about this is my new normal and that leads us nicely mm. into mindset. Mm. And it's something that we hear a lot of these days. People are always talking about mindset and and uh, mm. meditation and all the rest. I'd love to start off with, you know, what is the concept of mindset before we even delve into what are some techniques that somebody can can apply? Sure. Um, well, I guess most people who are, you know, most psychologists find the word amusing um, and certainly find the fact that it's a real buzzword now amusing because this is part of psychology. This is this is a conversation. We don't necessarily use the word mindset, but we are always, always looking at how our thoughts influence how we feel and influence how we behave. And ultimately, that's what mindset is. That's the drilled down version of it. Whether you're talking about mindset in terms of how you approach your working life or your business, whether you're talking about who you are as a person, how you are as a mother, whether you want to run a marathon and how you want to approach that and the mindset you need for that, the actual fundamentals of it are the same. And to really just kind of collapse it into its most simplest, simplest form you know, as our most formative years are those very, very early years, and it's during those years that we come up with what we would call core beliefs about ourselves and the world and others and also relationships, how we relate to one another, how people relate to us. And they lie pretty deeply within our subconscious. Now, sometimes our core beliefs are conscious, but a lot of them are subconscious. And so what then, you know, that's how we're walking around life. We're walking around life with these beliefs about ourselves, about other people, about, you know, how we're going to treat one another. It really feeds into our expectations um, of situations, of people, of ourselves, and leads then to the thoughts that we have. And then the thoughts that we have lead to how we feel, so our emotions and also our behaviour. So that if we've got a, a core belief, and I'll I'll just come up with a really obvious one that for some reason we believe that we're not worthy, and that's a, something we walk around with consciously or not, but it's there, then we're going to find that that endless self-talk we engage in, and we do, our minds are constantly, constantly chatting, <laughs> and usually, unfortunately, in a negative way, we're going to find that our thoughts have that theme have that flavor of I'm not worthy 
And of course, then we're going to have emotions that fit with that. So we're going to feel pretty down. They're not uplifting thoughts by any means. And we're going to go engage in behavior that really, um, I guess, perpetuates that belief. So for someone who truly believes they're not worthy, they're not going to necessarily engage in behavior that is helpful for them or positive for them because that's counter to this core belief. Instead, what they're going to do is find themselves not taking opportunities that would be good because, again, to do so would be contradictory to that belief or engaging in behaviour that just really reinforces that I'm not worthy belief. So when we're talking about mindset in chronic illness, we need to really understand our core beliefs and our thought processes because that's going to really have a very big impact on how we behave. And how we behave is whether you do the SIBO protocol or not. It's whether you comply with, you know, the the stages and the recommendations or not. It's also going to impact how you respond to a lapse because we know that anyone, and now I'm kind of talking more in the area of behaviour change, we know that it is inevitable when we're trying to change a behaviour that we're really, we're going to lapse, we're going to fall off the wagon. And you can look at that falling off the wagon as an indication that you can't do this, you may as well give up, you'll never get it right, you're not worthy or whatever your belief systems are and just throw your hands in the air and not get back on that wagon. Or you can look at a lapse and someone with a healthier mindset would look at a lapse of, oh, God, I should have actually... You know, you know, yes, I ate something I wasn't supposed to yesterday. Um, I'll just get back on track and, and you know, refocus my efforts again. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you're thinking that way, then that's how it affects your, your behaviour in the long run. And so that's why mindset has a really significant role in terms of managing your health, whether it's diet, exercise, sleep, the amount of water you drink, <laughs> or any of those kinds of things. It's really interesting that you're talking about that. And I think about my own journey with my mindset from prior to my SIBO diagnosis through my SIBO treatment and then to where it is today. And prior to SIBO, my SIBO diagnosis, I identified as a sick person because that's all I had ever been. I'd been chronically unwell mm. for 36 mm. years. I could mm. not imagine what life was like as a well person. I couldn't yeah. visualise it. I couldn't see it because it wasn't anything mm. I'd ever known. All I knew was sickness. And I think for many of my listeners, that's the state that they're in because all they've ever known is chronic illness, pain, discomfort, bloating, tummy troubles, um, you know, getting whatever flu or cold is going around. Uh, so they're, they're, that's their world. How, how can we... Um, take a step away from that world and move towards a more healthier mindset of thinking about how life will be in the future because it's very difficult, I think, when you're in the midst of it, particularly if you're mm. going from one big flare to the next and you just think, well, how on earth am I ever going to feel well again? Yeah, <laughs> and definitely. how can we change our mindset to help us with that? Well, I think, I mean, you've raised a really good point with your own journey in the sense that it was almost like being unwell was your identity, was at least a big part of your identity. And I think really, first you've got to recognise it, otherwise you are just going to bumble along and you'll inadvertently and unintentionally 
create these scenarios where it reinforces your belief about yourself that you're unwell. So there's a number of things at play that are important to be mindful of, I guess. And the first one is, is yes, do you actually have a sick identity, you know, a sick identity or an identity as a sick person? Now, I think a lot of people really may not be aware of how much is invested in that role. And to kind of divert a little bit, but I still think it's relevant is if you've been sick since you were little, then you'll probably find that that is your role in the family system. There's going to be other roles that other members of your family play, but that's your role. And probably moving out of that role, your biggest struggle is going to be how other people see you because they're still going to see you as the sick person in the family system. And so from my perspective, it really is about knowing that about yourself, knowing that that is how others might also perceive you, um, and recognising that that is going to be difficult to change and it's not going to be overnight. And I guess then, you know, how to put that into practice is to make small changes And it may well be, like, I really understand that there's an ideal version of how to approach overcoming SIBO, but I would certainly argue that if you can help um, yourself get some small wins in other areas that start to actually challenge this concept that you're the sick person, that's a really, really good way to start. And examples of that might be... Okay, so you've been chronically ill and you simply cannot imagine a life where you're almost skipping down the street. Now, that's a really, you know, that's the polar opposite to what your life is right now. And no wonder it's a real stretch then to to imagine that. So I would certainly encourage people to really start to imagine a small change and the impact of that small change. So if somebody is experiencing pain every day, I would put a lot of effort into visualising what it would be like to only have pain once a week. That might be the closest next step that you can do. And when I'm talking visualisation, I mean literally lying down and imagine a normal week for you, but this time you're imagining it and it might be that you only have pain on a Wednesday. And so you run your mind through your week and you really, really spend a lot of time imagining and visualising the other days of the week where you're not in pain and just how nice it is to feel pain-free and how much lighter you feel and, you know, how much more you're engaged in life and other people and all those kinds of things. And, yes, still imagine a a crappy day on the Wednesday, but just start to build that visualisation because we know that top performers, top athletes, you know, top business leaders engage in enormous amount of visualisation because it works. It absolutely works. So if you put the effort into imagining life, being well, but in small increments because the being well might be just too far removed and you're not going to believe it, then that's where you can spend a lot of energy so interesting you talk about the family unit because it's it's mm-hmm. something that I really resonate with, with uh, having mm. been a sick person all my life that I was a sick person in the family. Yeah. If anyone was going yeah. to be sick, it was always going to me, be me. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm sure that for many of my listeners that that, uh, that 
point that you've raised is really resonating with them. Yeah, well, definitely. And I think that's where when when you recognise, when it kind of occurs to you that that's the role you play, what starts to happen is you you see that in your interactions with them. And it gives you then the opportunity to not fulfil that role. So when people kind of approach you and say, oh, how are you going with that tone of voice because they're expecting you to say, oh, you know, my stomach, my IBS or, you know, whatever, you know, is really, really bad. When you, when you see that about to unfold, instead of responding like that, to the, oh, how are you going? <laughs> you can actually respond with, actually, you know, I'm I'm really quite well. I have had some difficult days, but I'm taking some action or I'm feeling better a little bit more often since I've been on this protocol. Like really check in and give the honest answer, not the default answer, because you're probably you probably have a default answer. It's a bit like, you know how sometimes when you ask people And I think, you know, I fell into this straight away when you asked me before we started uh, chatting for this interview, you said, how are you going? Well, my default answer is busy. (laughs) Um, And that's because I am always busy. But it's like, well, hang on a minute. Let's stop and think. Is there more that I could say about that? Could I actually give a different answer rather than just my default? And that's really relevant if you're the person who's always been the sick person in the family. And the sick person with your friends as well. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So don't allow yourself to fall into the trap. But the, the interesting thing is you will, you will find that people still perceive you and relate to you as that old version of yourself. Even, even if you're on the other side of things and you're feeling, you're genuinely feeling marvellous, you still might find it takes quite some time for the people who've been in your life for a while to see you differently. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I was talking to my partner on the weekend just around how I feel these days and one of Mm -hmm. the most significant changes for me is that I no longer have chronic illness. I haven't been sick in two and a half years since yeah. I, um, in, not with a cold or flu anyway, yeah. I've had one suspected parasite infection from my trip to Thailand uh, where mm. I got stuck in a flood and it would have been amazing not to get something in that situation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I remember uh, colleagues, friends, family, all sort of talking about how I was always the sick person and at wintertime I was always in bed sick. And I said to my partner, even my partner used to say, oh, you're always sick. And Mm. on the weekend I said to him, have you noticed that I have not been sick? I have not spent a day in bed sick for a couple of years and he was Mm. like yeah oh my gosh you really haven't you haven't been sick at all and he goes it's amazing you are very different now to what you were when I first met you so there does need to be a change in the people around us in who are in our lives because they've kind of 
not not in a mean way, but they can kind of pigeonhole us as, well, yes. Rebecca's the sick one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've got to. We've got to. I mean, that's a fantastic thing that you said to your partner, and and I think you know, in a different vein, but it's the busy thing. You know, I remember my husband making a comment a couple of months ago. You know, you're always out at night for work, and I actually got the calendar out and I said I made a decision you know, late last year that I was going to be home in the evenings, you know, every evening but the one evening I work in my private practice, which I've been doing since forever. And, you know, this is this is an empty calendar, <laughs> essentially. Um, you'll see that there's nothing on the calendar for a work, an evening of me being out doing work stuff. Um, and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, and I think – I think it's we we have to do that. Unfortunately, it's people have got their own stuff going on and we need to kind of stake our claim when it comes to the change we've experienced and the the new person we've become. We need to stand up for ourselves and say, "Well, hang on a minute, that isn't how it is anymore." And most people around us are like, "Oh, yeah, okay." And that starts to help them shift their perception of us and shift how they relate to us. One thing I'd like to, to to touch on is just around your comment earlier around this is my new way of eating and the mm. food component with SIBO in particular is often filled with enormous amounts of stress but also people can be very harsh on themselves if they cheat, if they fall mm. off the bandwagon, mm. if they eat something that they feel that they shouldn't have eaten. And there is enormous remorse that can come with that. How can we approach that situation if we have eaten either consciously or inadvertently off the off the meal plan and uh, and we're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I, I yeah. have I ruined everything, and yeah. um, and that can often lead to the spiral then of, well, I've ruined it in that meal, so I'm going to go and eat all the food of all mm. the things that I shouldn't mm. eat, and I'm mm. going to go crazy. How can we? Yeah. How can we approach that differently? Well, I think first and foremost, recognize that it's highly likely to happen. Because as I said before, when you change behaviour, whether it's uh, probably the most obvious one, and clearly it's a much more you know significant health concern, but is people who stop smoking. We know that it, the research has shown that it can take between three and four really serious attempts for people to be successful at giving up smoking. And if you have a look at all the advertising around smoking, what you will notice is that they are providing smokers with tools that don't have the same damaging impact as the actual cigarette but help them, I guess, manage their cravings, so to speak. And that is a strategy completely based on the recognition that it is really hard to change things, to whether it's adding things into our life, for example, doing more exercise, or whether it's removing something not so great in our life, whether it's cigarettes or gluten, <laughs> um, that's difficult. And so if we go into this process of I'm now going to eat according to the SIBO protocol, I think people really need to plan for what we call a lapse. And planning for that would be being very clear about 
the foods and the situations where they are most likely to trip up. So if there's something on that eating plan that you think, oh, my God, I've got to give that up, that's going to be so hard, then that's going to be the one that you're likely (laughs) to trip up with if you're going to trip up. And so, again, sometimes it's about not having it in the house at all. Uh, sometimes it's about going to a function and recognising, like for me, when I was on the SIBO protocol and off dairy, I knew if I walked into a networking function and they had cheeses there, I knew straight away, okay, I'm in a risky scenario here because it's got my favourite food laid out in front of me. And just recognising that enabled me then to I guess, draw upon a number of strategies. And these are are unique to me, but the concept of having strategies is the same for all of us. We need to find ways to help us manage being in these risky scenarios, shall we say. And so for me, it was certainly things like if I thought that kind of food was being going to be there, yes, it was eating beforehand. Um, It was also not standing anywhere near that particular table It was recognising that the more anxious I was, the less able I was to refuse that food or say or or not go near that table and eat that food because when I'm anxious, I want my comfort food and my comfort food is cheese. (laughs) So it's, okay, well, how how can I reduce my anxiety in this situation? Oh, wonderful. There's at least one or two or three people I know in this scenario. I'm going to go and chat to them and I'm going to chat to them until two things, my anxiety drops. And I'm going to chat to them until my urge to have my favourite food has disappeared. There's a concept in um, uh, psychology and particularly in a type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, and they call it urge surfing. And it's not a new concept. I'm pretty sure I remember my mum talking about it 30 years ago when she was doing Weight Watchers or something, although she wouldn't have called it that. But it's, it's that delaying. So if you have that urge to have something that you know, you ideally wouldn't have, it's negotiating with yourself and saying, okay, if I still feel like it in five or 10 minutes or in 20 minutes or however long you need to put a time frame on it, then you do give yourself permission to have it. But what people find is that we do, we get lots of urges to eat different things and drink different things during the course of a day and an evening. But it is just that. It's an urge and the urge passes. And so if we can ride that wave by making that kind of deal with ourselves and if at the end of it we still really, really want it, then you may choose to go ahead with it. But what we typically find is that urge is gone. We're back in a space within ourselves where we can say, geez, it would be really nice to have that. But the urge is gone and I'm going to choose to not have it because I'm focused on this particular way of life, way of eating, or this outcome. And for me, that was something that I really, I guess, utilised in the sense of delaying as much as I could. Um, I go to my mother-in-law's place for dinner, and she has she leaves the food on the table, so it's kind of like a buffet, and it's on the table where we're sitting eating, and where we also remain seated well after dinner is officially over. And so the food is just there. And I know when I was finding it difficult to not just continually pick, and this is at any food, even SIBO-friendly food, I made the decision that I would move to 
the couch, which is still in, in the same room. So I could still be part of the conversation, but I, it just stopped that mindless eating. And it also stopped occasionally that urge if there was something I really thought would be yummy. It wasn't in my face. So urge surfing is a really important thing. And the other thing that for me, again, when you get through that urge, that really, really is important. And it's important for me generally in how I live my life is a very values-based way of living. And those values, while there's some fundamental values that never change for me, well, certainly haven't since I, you know, reached adulthood and certainly not since I've become a mum, I guess my focus changes over time. So while I was on the SIBO protocol, that was uppermost and uppermost value for me to focus on healing my gut (laughs) and doing what I needed to do to become well and feel consistently well. And so when I got to that other side of the urge by using some of those other strategies and the urge passed, I was able to remind myself of, why I was doing what I was doing, you know, how I felt at some of those really awful times where I had really bad episodes. I was able to remind myself of what my focus and what my value was. And that was, I want to be healthy because I do like living a very full, and there's that word, busy life. I like it. And I want to be able to do that. And I don't want to be hamstrung by not feeling good. And so for me, it's about assessing and reminding yourself of your values and however you need to do that to remind yourself, whether it's sticky notes on your fridge, um, whether it's writing in a journal every day, whether it's telling someone like your partner that this is something that is really important to you for this period of your life and can they remind you of that. And it's not about saying you can't eat that. It's actually about what do you hope to get out of being on this SIBO protocol, it gets you then thinking, oh, that's right, that's how I want to feel, as opposed to someone saying you can't eat that and we all get cranky about that. (laughs) That's not a very effective way (laughs) for your partner to um, help you on this journey. So those are the kinds of things that have been really useful for me. And as I said, I, I apply them to lots of different things. I know there was a couple of summers ago, I got in a really bad habit of just not drinking enough water and Perth is, you know, chronically hot in summer and I would end up with these really shocking headaches because I was dehydrated. And so for me at that time, um, you know, I did a whole bunch of things and one was as simple as setting an alarm on my phone to go off every hour to remind myself to drink. And I got into that habit and then I didn't need to have the alarm on anymore and kind of got back into just being a regular drinker of a good quantity of water. So, yeah, that's that's how I approach those kinds of things. It's interesting you talk about the um, approach to making that conscious decision. And I know when I first started the SIBO treatment and I followed mm-hmm. the biphasic diet and went on to herbs, I said to myself at that very moment, oh, I'll, I'll have some cheat days. I can't stick to this. And my naturopath said to me, the more compliant you are, the quicker you will get through SIBO. And I went home and I thought to myself, I've been sick for 36 years. I really felt like I was at rock bottom at that moment in time. And I thought, 
I'm going to do everything in my power to get through this as quick as possible because I want to be a healthy, happy old person and I, I want to start living my life. And I didn't ever think that I had very strong willpower. I would have said, if you'd questioned me at that time, how good is your willpower? I would have said it's non-existent. I can't say no to anything. But the moment that I chose to move towards health and I chose to do everything I could to regain my health and to get through SIBO, it was incredible what that decision did for me. And I've got to say the first couple of weeks, there were times when I really felt like a glass of wine or I really felt like um, some carbohydrates, some bread or something like that. But when I would get into that position – It was mainly when I went out for dinner because then I would see other people's food and think, oh, God, I'd love some hot chips right now. But I'd look at that food and I'd think, okay, I could eat that right now, but that's most likely going to give me a flare and it's going to set me back. Is that ultimately what Mm. I'm trying to do at the moment? And I'd think to myself, no, it's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to move towards health. And I would then say, no, that is not what I need right now. I also educated my family, my friends, my partner. Um, Everybody heard about SIBO, so they knew what I was doing with my diet. And I brought people along with me in terms of getting them interested in it. And, um, Mm. And I found that with every passing day, of saying um, no to foods that I knew would make me feel sick and saying yes to health, I got stronger. So by Mm. the end of the six months of my treatment, I was so much stronger than I was at day one. So every day was an evolution. Absolutely. And I think you you said something really important then before and, and it was along the lines of you were moving towards something rather than running away from something. Now, I know in many ways you were, you know, you were trying to move away from ill health by moving towards health, but your focus wasn't on what you were leaving behind by the sounds of it. You know, what you were focused on is what you wanted, which is where that visualization process comes in that I was mentioning before. And often we find it easier to fo- to achieve things when we focus on what we're going to gain, certainly easier than if we focus on what we're going to lose. I mean, none of us like losing anything except maybe a few kilos. Um, uh, So we, again, we know there's a fair amount of research that I think most people would have heard it in in a really just layman's sense that it's much easier to create a new habit than to give up an old one. And so if there is an old habit you want to stop, it's far better and you're more likely to be successful if you find a habit that's counter intuitive to the other habit you'd like to stop. So find something you want to do that cancels out almost this other bad habit. And what ends up happening is the more you focus on adding that to your life, then the other habit starts to lose its power and you naturally start to let it go. And so I think what you described there in terms of, you know, those critical moments where you could have had the hot chips, which are very yummy, so I understand the dilemma. <laughs> but, you know, it was like, no, I'm I'm moving this amount of steps towards this particular picture. This is how I want to feel and who I want to be. And on that other note, I guess, is I've got a lovely colleague and she wrote a beautiful book called My Power Statement. And I guess the crux of the book is 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 this. That there are times in our life where we 
feel we don't have what we need within us to do things in our life. And so the power statement then becomes, uh, if so-and-so was in this situation, what would they do? And you act accordingly. So if you were trying to change a health-related behaviour and you know of someone who has successfully done that, you may not feel as though you're there yet. You're not, you've not got the internal resources to be this person who's going to change this behaviour without too many issues. But if you've got someone in your life who has, then you can think, okay, I've got the option to have hot chips here or not. What would, you know, Jane Doe have done? What would Joe Bloggs do in this scenario? And I'm going to act as if I'm them. And so that is one way that you can start to build your own, for want of a better word, willpower muscle is to draw on the strength of the people who emulate something you are trying to achieve or emulate qualities you want to have. And so that's a really nifty little tool as well. One of the challenges for many of my listeners is being a busy mum. They're running a busy household. Not only do they have to sort of run a household, they've got to manage their own illness or they may be caring for a child or a partner who has SIBO. They've got a career to deal with. They've they've got a lot of things going on in their life. And this is an area that you specialise in working with mothers in particular. Mm. Um, mm. Any advice um, for them on, on just how to manage that uh, overload that often happens for, for women in uh, who have chronic illness and, and have a lot going on in their lives? Yeah, well, a number of things come to mind. And I guess the first hurdle that women need to or mums um, need to move beyond in their own minds is they we don't like to take we I call it the burnt chop syndrome so if there's you know a whole bunch of beautifully beautifully cooked chops but there's one burnt chop you can pretty much guarantee that the mum's going to have the burnt chop we put ourselves last and you know that's last in terms of time we we don't take time for ourselves unless it's left over after everyone else has had their time whatever that might look like Um, We also don't like to spend money on ourselves and we can feel incredibly guilty when we do. Again, if you're flush with cash, that may not be such an issue, but most people aren't, you know. And these are usually the biggest hurdles that I think mums have because they play out in such subtle ways of, I really want to do this, but we don't have the money. I really want to do this, but you know, it's too hard to cook SIBO-friendly food and my kids won't like it, so it, I'm just not going to do it right now. When they're older and, and you know, they're happy to eat what I have to eat and all those kinds of things. Now, apart from the fact that I know that's quite an uneducated comment because I know that you have an amazing, <laughs> amazing recipes for wonderful food and my kids certainly are more than happy to eat the things that are in your cookbook and are really SIBO-friendly. But, you know, they're the kinds of hurdles that they need to overcome first. They really need to give themselves permission and say that I'm going to be a better version of me if I do this. If I can get myself well, you know, it might take six months of, you know, having to focus on myself in a way that I'm not used to and my family aren't used to, but with the ultimate goal of feeling well, of having energy 
of being, you know, having a far greater mood because being sick is not a happy experience by any means, then it's that long-term payoff, isn't it, you know, that a mum is going to, to get. And I think then the second thing that mums also can find um, or I find when I work with mums is this real need to do everything for everyone. And I really get when they're babies and toddlers, of course, they need a heck of a lot more involvement from mum, getting them ready and all those kinds of things. I'm, I'm not naive. I've got four kids. I really know this. But we often don't create a sense of or, or we do, we're not very good at creating independent children and the downside to that is if we always do things for our children, they don't actually get a sense of competency within themselves. I've talked with so many mums who are still kind of laying out the school clothes, packing the lunch, making the lunch, you know, all those kinds of things for their children right up until those upper primary years, even high school years. To be honest, and this, I mean, I could get a lot of backlash from this, but to be honest, that's not helping to create competent, independent, self-sufficient young adults. You, you cannot kick your kids out of home at 18 or 20 or 22 or whatever age and never have had them lift a finger and for them to know how to manage their time, organise themselves and do these certain tasks for themselves. It's something that you can instil in them from a much younger age than a lot of mums do. And the reason I'm saying this, of course, is because the more mums do everything for everyone, then yes, the less time they have for themselves, the less time they can give to meal planning and preparing, you know, meals that are compliant with the SIBO protocol. Because if you're that busy doing everything for everyone, then you, you don't have the headspace for that kind of stuff and often just simply don't have the time. So I do really appreciate how you know tough it is but sometimes we are our or often to be honest we're our own worst enemies and I guess the other thing to always keep in mind and I say this to my mums in general because there's certainly times just like chronic illness where you cannot imagine feeling well well motherhood can feel so relentless that you simply cannot imagine it being any easier at all maybe you kind of think when the kids leave home but that's a long time away <laughs> Uh, but the reality is that I wouldn't say motherhood is necessarily any easier when your kids get older than when they're little. Um, in It's just different. But because of that, the seasons change. And so what was hard when they're little isn't present anymore when they get older. You don't have those same battles. You have other things to do, but you keep growing um, as a mother just as much as your children keep developing and so when mums kind of talk about those sleepless nights when they've got babies and toddlers and things, that is really, really, really tough, but it doesn't last forever. And so reminding yourself that this process of trying to improve your health, while it's a lifelong thing, as I said, this is my new normal. My new normal now is so easy to be a part of my life. It's ridiculous. But it's always tough when you're changing something in your life at the beginning. And so if you look at that as a season, as a period of time in your life where you're going to put your energy into making yourself well by doing these different things, yes, you will continue to eat 
in a SIBO compliant way to some degree, whatever you've learned about your intolerances and things. But that becomes second nature. And so the season where it's hard and you have to put effort in, you have to think about what you're eating and you've got to, you know, it's not automatic, is still only a season. It is not the rest of your life. And I think mums need to be reminded of that because often we think, oh, my God, you know, I've got all this going on and the kids are full on and they need me so much and I don't have time and, you know, I can't possibly add this to my life as well because there's a sense that it's endless, you know, that this is going to go on forever. And as I said, while they will probably eat differently to what they might have done for the first half of their life or more, as they get used to it, it becomes automatic and it's not effortful anymore. It's very true. It's uh, It can feel like it's it's eternal um, when you're in the midst of it, but <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> Things change. Um, do you have any uh, tips on how people can find the time for themselves out of a day? Uh, if somebody's listening and thinks, well, that's fine. You can say that, you know, you can make time for yourself, but I don't have time. I don't have even a spare minute for myself. How can we find that spare minute or five or ten? Oh, you know, um, I would be, I would be, if that person was sitting in front of me, we'd spend a lot of time looking in minute detail at their day to find those five minutes. My first thought would be turn the TV off, <laughs> get off Facebook for a while. Because I think again, and, and I know, again, that's going to annoy some people that I say that, but it really is about what what you want to achieve and what's important to you. And now I, I'm actually not much of a TV watcher, but I have been known to spend way too many hours on Facebook. And if that's what I choose to do, then it will inevitably reduce the time that I have to sit down and think, okay, what am I going to eat this week? What do I need, you know, to put on the shopping list? What's the meals and all those kinds of things? You know, uh, it will. But if I really want to achieve this goal, then maybe I need to not spend as much time on those activities. Again, for me, it's one thing I ask myself, is this adding joy or value to my life? And that is one thing that I say to myself very often when I find my Facebook scrolling has increased yet again, because it does. That is a real battle for me. Um, And I think, no, it, it isn't actually adding joy or value to my life. What would add joy or value to my life might be making the effort to catch up with friends. It might be just hanging out with my kids and actually playing with them. Or it might be reading a really interesting book as opposed to what's on Facebook. You know, there's a whole different uh, bunch of things. And certainly in the beginning of my SIBO journey, what was going to add more value, maybe not joy, but certainly value to my life was thinking about what I was going to eat that week. So, because I, I, enjoy cooking, but I cannot stand deciding what to eat. I really can't. Um, It's just one more decision I feel I have to make. And so looking, you know, I did buy your cookbook and stuff and looking at the kinds of meals that I could cook that would be SIBO friendly. Look at what, looking at what I already, you know, my my go-to recipes that I already used quite automatically and checking if they were SIBO friendly, and most of them actually were fortunately, but those that weren't just tweaking or removing certain ingredients and things. And and spending my, you know, some time on the weekend thinking about what that next week was going to be. And to be honest, it really, when I got into the groove, it really didn't take that long. 
what probably took a bit longer, um, but again, it was not something I had to do every day, not even every week, was looking at, okay, why am I doing this and having that really crystal clear why I'm doing it, a statement about that. What am I, where am I going to get tripped up? Okay, I'm gonna, I guarantee I'm going to get tripped up if there's really nice cheeses in my house or if I go somewhere where there's nice cheeses and what can I do if I find myself, you know, faced with cheese? I know that sounds so silly, doesn't it? But, you know, that I went through that process and, and really fleshing out those things, answering those questions. But once I'd answered them, I didn't have to do that again through the whole three, four months that I was following the protocol. But it was really important and useful information and a useful exercise for me to have gone through. So I guess that my response would be steal your time, claim your time, you know, whether it's sitting in line at the school pickup and, you know, even just planning two days meals or whatever in that time frame. Um, Do what you can when you can. Yeah, grab those minutes. Never, ever... Um, underestimate what can be achieved in five or ten minutes and I think we do it's like exercise people will say well I don't have an hour to exercise and I'm like well do you have 10-15 minutes yes okay well why not go outside and go for a walk in 10-15 minutes oh well you know what's the point it's not an hour Um, and I'm like there's every point to doing what you can and so it's the same kind of approach is we're very we get very rigid ideas of how we have to do things. I have to have an hour every day to be able to plan what I'm going to eat. Well, if you don't, then you need to, you know, don't dismiss that you might only have 10 minutes. 10 minutes is still really valuable. It is definitely. And it's something, uh, it's one of the reasons why I actually developed the menu planner, which is in a link in the show notes for people to download uh, to help people put together their um, meals. And if they can only do two days at a time, at least having two days planned out, it does give you, it helps make you feel more organized and it gives you a little bit of freedom, I believe, so that when you come to meal times, you're not thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to eat this time mm. around and taking away some of that yeah. anxiety. Um, yeah. It's been wonderful chatting to you today about mindset. <laughs> if people want to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I mean, I, I really have two different emails um, and two different businesses. Either of them will always get to me. Uh, if they were to email me, it's probably more effective given I know that your audience is international. Uh, so uh, one email is kbouse, that's k-b-o-u-s-e at liferesolutions.com.au. But you can also find me on my, well, I've got a number of websites, but you can also find me on my website, which is The Conscious Mother. And if you were to Google that, then you'll find me and you'll be able to read a bit about me. And certainly if, if um, anyone is interested in the motherhood side of things and that's the way to go but as mentioned you know I do have a generic private practice I've worked with clients with all sorts of everyday issues as well as mental health issues for my 20 plus year career so while my niche area over the last number of years has been mothers or soon to be mothers I have I still have lots of clients who aren't mums or certainly not talking about motherhood they're talking about other things and coming for other reasons so that would be the best way 
Wonderful. So, Kirsten Baus, it's been wonderful having you on to the Healthy Gut podcast today, talking all about mindset. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us. My pleasure. I hope it was helpful. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Kirsten Baus. If you would like to see the show notes from today's episode or get any of the links that were mentioned in the show, simply head to thehealthygut.co forward slash mindset podcast and there you will get all of the show notes. Coming up on next week's show, we're joined by the queen of SIBO herself. She's back, Dr. Alison Seebecker, and we're talking all about the migrating motor complex. I just love this episode with Dr. Seebecker, and I'm sure it will answer plenty of your questions. Now, I love hearing your feedback, so don't forget to leave a rating and review in iTunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast. And if you think that this episode might have been useful for someone you know, such as a friend or family member, simply share it with them and uh, let me know what they think. You can drop me an email at info at thehealthygut.co and also come across to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. We're everywhere and just look for us under The Healthy Gut. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.